I always wish I could whistle. Well, again, so, so great to be with you this morning. Um, maybe you were like, you couldn't contain yourself getting here. I want to worship with God's people. I want to, you know, be in God's word together. Maybe you dragged yourself here. I'm not sure, you know, and my guess is there's a combination of both. But I trust that the Lord has you here. And I trust that he has you here for a reason. And, and I appreciate your presence, and I know the Lord does too. Um, we, are, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Um, the, the question, just to prime the pump a little bit, that I wanted to ask is, is what, what is a mountaintop experience? And I'm not saying necessarily right off the bat, give me a mountaintop experience, but what does that expression mean, a mountaintop experience? Or what do you think of what... Mountaintop experience. Okay, a spiritual high. Like a spiritual high? No. Okay, here you go. Spiritual high. Okay, something that's uplifting. A revelation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's good, Maggie. That's good. Yeah, so it's a different perspective. And I didn't even, I got to admit, that that would be a whole other thing to flesh out, the journey to the mountaintop, right? What you're, how many have done a lot of hiking, right? Like you're not, you're not seeing the same on the way up, right? Sometimes if you really, if you go up to New Hampshire or out west, it's once you get above that tree line that you start going, oh, wow, what, you know, neat, good, good thoughts. So. Okay. Okay, very good. Very good. Thank you. What was your name? Ron. Ron. Thanks, Ron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. Great. Thank you, Jody. Any other thoughts? Huh. Yeah, definitely can be, right? Something something that kind of what we might call an epiphany, right? Okay. That that should that should result in maybe a different view, some change. Very good, very good. So generally we'd say good thing or bad thing? Okay. Any bad? Anybody want in? Okay. Yeah. 
You guys are pretty thoughtful people. You're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're going to we're going to touch on that. And we're going to touch on that a little bit. Thank you, Roxanne. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So for the Christian, a mountaintop experience we think of as a spiritual sense. Um, it might be kind of a moment of spiritual grandeur, a moment of in in a in a right context spiritual ecstasy, um, just or beauty we might say of rapture of delight it's I, I think of being close to God feeling really close to God in the scripture you'd say it's definitely related also to revelation to God's revelation um, sometimes um, sometimes it's it's alone and sometimes it's in community right sometimes it's something you experience in community you, you, you it may be it may be when you come to the Lord for that first time and you turn your life to Him or even that period afterward. Um, it might be like I was thinking of our baptism this past summer. Man, that was a good day, right? That was a good moment. To me, that was like a mountaintop. I thought of there's times of worship for me. I, I love to worship. And, and I know some people are really oriented that way. And, and uh, there was a time last year, late last year with the One Life students, the crew last year that were visiting out here and called this place home for that time, there's about 10, 12 of them, and we were in our living room, and we had gotten to know these students, and one of them brought a guitar, and we just worshipped, and I mean we worshipped, and I was just like, here we are in our living room, and it was like the Lord lifted that to another place. It was just beautiful. It was beautiful. Um... I've served at a lot of youth retreats where uh, Christian teens, I've through the years helped out at different retreats at Three Springs, Breakaway in Progress, some of the residential camps. And, and a lot of teens have those kind of mountaintop experiences at some of those retreats. And they, they're, they're removed from their regular rhythms of life, right? So there's kind of a journey to get there. They're, they're, they're being surrounded by people that are loving and caring for them. They're, they're worshiping the Lord and hearing challenging teaching sometimes two times a day, right, all week long. And they're in a, in a hopefully, a community that's honest and that, that's close-knit um, for that period of time. But then they do what? They go home. <laughs> then they go home. And I don't know how many students I've talked to through the years that say, oh, man, it was so hard, you know, because it was like I was so close to God at Three Springs, and then I went home, and it was like I just couldn't sustain it. Right? You ever feel that way? Maybe God's more there than here. So you ask these questions, well, was that, was that experience a false reality? Was it, was it a false reality only until I enter into real life? Many Christians experience these mountaintop experiences, these summit experiences in different places, in different ways, and alone, and with community, and coming to faith, and being baptized, and worshiping the Lord, or hearing a teaching where you're just like, all of a sudden these pieces you know, snap together, and you're like, ah, oh, the Spirit re reveals something He's never revealed before. But then you go back, and you can't bottle it, right? And sometimes you even start saying, was that, was that real? Was that real? 
We see a lot of mountaintop experiences, literally thus the expression in the Bible. Um, Noah receives his covenant promise from God up on a mountain. Um, we, you just, all through the Old Testament, you see, you see Abraham goes up to the mountain with his son Isaac, right? And it's at that place where he had told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, foreshadowing what God would do with his one and only son. But it's in that place that he does what? He provides a, a ram, a sacrifice up on a mountain. Moses is given the Old Testament law up on a mountain. Moses also goes up on a mountain to get the view of the promised land, even though he wasn't able to enter it before he died. Elijah was up on Mount Carmel when he defeated the, uh, the prophets of Baal, right? He was also, when he was boogieing and he was fleeing, he was up on an, another mountain where he heard the, heard the voice of the Lord. Not in the, not in the whirlwind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in the what? Gentle whisper. The Gospels tell us that, that Jesus often went to a mountainside to pray, to be in solitude with God the Father. Last week we reflected on Jesus disclosing to his, his disciples, his followers, that Messiah, and this is right off, remember, off the heels of, of Peter's, you know, Jesus saying, who do the people say I am? Well, they say you're Elijah, they say you're John the Baptist, they say you're a prophet old. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? The son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus then discloses to them that Messiah must suffer. He must suffer rejection and death only to rise again three days later. And not only is this true of himself, if he's the master, so those who follow will have a like experience. That if you, that you're going to have to lose your life if you're ultimately going to find it. And we talked about last week, because of how these disciples were culturally conditioned to see Messiah, they're like, no comprende, <laughs> does not compute. It was really difficult for them to receive. Messiah is going to be triumphant king. Messiah is going to vanquish our enemies. He's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. How does this downward journey of suffering and rejection and death fit? So this week, just a little while later, Jesus takes three of his disciples, what you might call his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they have like the mountaintop experience. And they will see Messiah, the one that just foretold his suffering, in a glory a divine glory that is just beyond imagination. I purposely, sometimes I do PowerPoint, sometimes I don't, but this morning I purposely didn't. Because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine putting an image up that would be like, this is probably what it looked like. There is no image. It's truly, you had to be there, right? And, and in this, Mark, the, in his gospel, holds before us this tension of this seeming paradox as he holds up these two pictures side by side. The Lion of Judah and what? The Lamb that was slain. Right? Revelation. Look, the Lion of Judah. Where is he now? Look, see, one as if a lamb, as if he had been slain. The suffering servant who will suffer on behalf of sinful men and women and the son of the living God. These two pictures side by side, same person. And that is what they have to see more and more clearly. 
Mark 9, we'll read verses 2 through 6. We'll actually spend most of our time writing these verses. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Side note, he did not know what to say. <laughs> they were so frightened. Thank you, Mark. And again, a lot of people think Mark received his, a lot of his source from Peter, so that might be Peter himself bringing that point out. Verse 7 I'm sorry, no, we'll stop there. Stop at verse 6. So Mark is very, Mark in his gospel, if you've noticed, he, he's, he's not real concerned about specific timetables. And so it's really interesting. He, he starts this out and says, after six days, after six days, after six days of what? After six days of you are the Christ. Okay, you're right. Messiah must suffer, be rejected, and killed. Um, Jesus, you think about even Jesus' Passion Week, right? It was on the seventh day that something remarkable happened. He was raised from the dead. It very well may be, a lot of people, a lot of biblical scholars think that this six days points back to Moses waiting on Mount Sinai before God spoke to him within the cloud, the cloud of his glory, the glory of the Lord. The, it says the Israelites, to the Israelites, this cloud looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. You wonder why the Israelites were afraid of the mountain, you know? Like Moses is going in and it's like, to me it looks like the, the whole mountain is on fire. The glory of the Lord. Uh, Moses spends time with, up in Mount Sinai again. If you know the story, he had the stone tablets. He comes down. Israel had created these idols. He throws the tablets down in his anger. They break up. He goes again. He gets another set of tablets. And this time he comes down, and his face is, what's happening? Yeah, he's like glowing. Like there's this radiance coming off his face. He says his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord and it was so radiant that it freaked the Israelites out, so much so that eventually when Moses would spend time with the Lord, he would put a veil over his face when he came out with the people. So now Jesus ascends this unspecified mountain. Uh, traditionally, it's Mount Tabor or Hermon with his three friends, and he is said to be transfigured before them. The major, what's, what's the major effect? If we were to say there's a physical effect of this transformation, what, what's described? Yeah. Yeah, so Mark says that his clothes are white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. White wouldn't have been a standard color of the day. It wouldn't have been very practical. And the, the other, it's interesting. So there's this, the description is one of what we might call overwhelming radiance. Uh, like, here's some of these other descriptions. Mark speaks of this unearthly brilliance of his clothes. Luke tells us that while Jesus is in prayer, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. 
But that's a sustained brightness, right? It's like a flash of lightning. You know how it lights up the whole night sky? That's a sustained brightness. Matthew tells us in his account, his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. So Moses was radiant because he had spent time with the Lord and he's reflecting the Lord's glory. But Jesus... I'm sorry, Addy. I'm being too loud. It's terrible. Making kids cry. But Jesus, his radiance is innate. It's inherent. It's a part of his very nature. It's intrinsic. It's divine. The Greek word here for transfigured is where we get our word. Anyone know? What does a butterfly do? Metamorphosis. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. Uh, It means to change into another form or an outward change that comes from within. So Jesus doesn't actually become a different being here. What, What seems to happen, and again, I'm explaining the unexplainable, right? Can we be fair to say that? Like I'm trying to explain in blah, 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 gibberish terms the unexplainable, Okay. But, but what seems to happen at the most elementary level is that the disciples are getting a glimpse of who Jesus is beyond his humanity. It's like if you can just imagine, like the veil is lifted for a moment, and there's this overwhelming radiance exuding from the whole body of the Lord. It's like the vision of Daniel in Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6. He says, Daniel says, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen. Just again, imagine this. If you're an imaginative, visual person, imagine this. He has a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face like lightning. His eyes flaming, were like flaming torches. His arms and legs looked like the gleam of burnished bronze. And his voice like the sound of a multitude. And then we get a very similar, one of these men, John, gets a future vision in in his revelation when he's out on an island by himself. We hear a very similar picture in Revelation 1, verses 12 through uh, 16. Someone is speaking to me, says, I turned around to see, voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone, and it's a quote, like a son of man, Daniel chapter 7, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His hair, head and hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was that of was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And, And I think they're experiencing what... We talk about heaven, right? Heaven. So we talk the new kingdom... Uh, the New Jerusalem, it's really described in, in, in the end of Revelation. And it says, in that New Jerusalem, that heavenly city of which the, the city on earth is just a shadow of, there'll be no need for the what? Yeah, no need for the sun or the moon. It says in Revelation twenty one twenty three, the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it 
gives it light. And the lamb, L-A-M-B, speaking of Jesus, is its lamp. That's brightness. That's radiance. That's intense. I, 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 I'm sure it doesn't say this explicitly, but if it's not for the Lord's grace, these men should have been dead. Right? These men should have been dead. <laughs> this word isn't used, this word transfigured isn't common in Scripture. It's used here, it's used in Matthew's parallel account of the transfiguration. The only two instances, it's really interesting, just that the only two, other two instances that this word is used in the Greek has to do with God transforming his people. God transforming his people into the mind and character of his son. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, same word, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we, and the we in context is those who have turned to the Lord, and we who with unveiled faces, think who? Moses, right? Put a veil over his face, the glory of the Lord reflected through him. When we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, metamorphosis, into the likeness, his likeness, that's the Son, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's an... I mean, I'm just a... I'm a three-year-old trying to tell you an adult story. Man, I don't even. And then two men appear um, who had gone to be with God many centuries before, both, both of them going to the Lord under kind of mysterious circumstances, um, Moses and Elijah. And, and again, most biblical scholars that are smarter than myself believe at very least is a representation of God's law and God's prophets. And, and, and Jesus is about to bring fulfillment to all that was written. And he's about to inaugurate something new. A new covenant that, were super, that will supersede the old. Fulfill it and supersede it. A covenant in his grace. Unmerited favor. A covenant that can only just be received as a gift through faith. In Je through Jesus' blood. And Luke tells us, Mark doesn't say this, he tells us that, that they spoke to him about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. What a stark contrast. So his departure, they're speaking of what? His, his what? His death. He's, I think they're, they're talking, and it may be the whole thing. Yeah, it might be going, it's going to happen at Jerusalem, it says, Death, resurrection, ascension. The word it, departure, that's a study for another day, literally is exodus. So it's kind of cool. Mark, Matt, uh, Moses is talking to him like, let's talk about your exodus, right? Um, but what a stark contrast to think about what's coming for the Lord, his passion, as they speak to the radiant Christ. Just a really quick side note here. Um, I love that that... We see Moses and Elijah, quote-unquote, dead for centuries, still doing kingdom work. It's like, we, we often think, you know, it's like, or people might think, oh, you die, and if you trust in God, maybe in some vague form, you're up playing a harp up on the clouds somewhere, you know. That is not the picture of Scripture. 
These guys have been gone for centuries and they still are meaningfully involved in the kingdom. Maybe more, more, more meaningfully than ever. And that really is encouraging to me for those who go before, right? It, death does, physical death of the mortal body for the one who trusts in Jesus Christ does not mean an end. And it certainly does not mean an end of purpose and vitality in God's kingdom. And how do the disciples respond to this? As usual, we hear from Peter, Peter right? Who manages to speak before God the Father. <laughs> you notice that? Yeah, you relate to Peter, like something amazing happens, and immediately you're like, hey, God, let me tell you what's happening. Let me tell you what we should do. Let's make tents. That's what he says. Let's make tents. And it's really hard to figure out what he's talking about. Um, and, and that's reasonable. Mark said he did not know what he was saying. They were so afraid. Some people think it's a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles where they would make little tents commemorating the exodus out of Egypt. Some people think that he's actually talking, thinking about the tabernacle in the desert, that as they moved around with the desert, it, it, you know, the presence of the Lord was with them wherever they went. Some people think that Peter's just kind of saying, hey, maybe this is ground zero of God's new kingdom right here and right now. But, but at the very least, he kinda, we, we might say that, that Peter wanted to bottle it up. Peter, Peter wanted to make it permanent. Let's make tents. Let's establish something right here on this mountain for you, Jesus, for you, Elijah, for you, Moses. And still he's, kind of, you know, he's seeing Jesus, on, it seems like almost on par with these two. He's not, still not getting it. But just like Mary Magdalene is, is, is told, like you can't cling on to the risen Lord right now. It, it wasn't something to be bottled up. It couldn't be contained in a new tent. And we want to do that, right? With, with, hey, you know, I came to the Lord, and hey, I had this spiritual epiphany, and hey, I was at Three Springs, or hey, I was at One Life, and man, this speaker came, or hey, I was worshiping, or hey, you know? And it's like, we want to bottle it up. And the Spirit's like the wind. <laughs> but on the other hand, what Peter doesn't see clearly is that there's something revealed here in what's going on in the human body of Jesus, that the very human body of Jesus is the tent of God's presence. This very body that they, you know, is this, this itinerant preacher, this carpenter's son, this, you know, we, yeah, you're the Christ. What does all that mean? They're not getting it yet. He is the tent of God's presence. Right? John will later write in his intro to his gospel, The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling or pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth. The, the tent, the tabernacle that was holding the presence of God was with him already. And, and you know, some of you are like, I get it. You're like, man, I wish God would tabernacle with me. I wish, I wish Jesus would pitch his tent with me. I wish I could have been like Peter, James, and John and walked with him on this earth. And it's really interesting. Do you know that Jesus says, 
that it's better for you that I left. What? Say what? He says in John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the who? The counselor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Listen, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has pitched his tent not just with you, inside of you. That's pretty cool. Verse 7, we'll, we'll, these next couple of verses we'll go through a little more quickly. There's so much, so much here, so much here. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and the voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And this cloud envelops them. And in the Old Testament, we see this cloud representing this special manifestation of God's presence and glory, what, what's, what has been called the Shekinah glory of God. And then... As this, and again, first century Jew, they're going, oh, cloud is enveloping. They know. They know the stories. They, this is the special presence of God. And a voice of the Father comes and speaks. And I love it because it's simple and it's clear. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's this, like at Jesus' baptism, he reaffirms the distinctiveness, the utter distinctiveness above all others of Jesus. He is uniquely my one and only son. He is uniquely the only one born of a woman. Listen, this might make, he is uniquely the only one born of a woman that is truly worthy of the love of God. He perfectly walked the walk. He perfectly obeyed the will and the heart of God. This, his God the Father's stamp of approval is on Jesus. This is my son, my unique, distinct son of whom I love, who is, who is living everything in perfection, my will and my heart. Listen, you and I in our sinfulness are not innately worthy of the love of God. That's why we sing amazing grace. <laughs> because it's in God's amazing grace that he has chosen to set his love upon you. And he has chosen to extend that love through the one who is worthy. And the one who is worthy of his love came down on this earth, pitched his tent with us, dwelled amongst us as God in the flesh, and then eventually sets his face toward Jerusalem and says, I will take your sin, every sin that you deserve to be punished with, I will take that upon myself, the worthy one for the unworthy one. And God will extend his love to you through me. And all you got to do is believe it. And then those who were enemies of God through faith become sons and daughters of God. Hmm. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that the Lord became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then what's the Father's simple command? What's he say? What's the last three words? Listen to him. And this listen isn't just like, I hear you. Right? Parents, you know, I hear you, Mom. I know you hear me. I know you've heard the words. <laughs> but listen, so often in the scripture, listen means to heed and obey. Listen, what, what's encapsulated in that word is that I'm hearing it and I'm heeding it and I'm obeying it. So it's like the law and the prophets have come. The one who fulfills and supersedes the law and the prophets is here. Listen to him. Peter, shut your mouth, bro. I know it. I get it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a verbal vomit type of person. And it's like, I guess, maybe Randy, quiet your heart. Shut your mouth. Stop resisting what you don't, what you can't yet fit together. And just in that place of glory, listen. Listen, heed and obey, even when you don't understand it all. Last couple of verses, and we'll just do this quickly. Um, verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone about what they had seen until the... Son of man had risen from the dead. And they kept asking, they kept the matter to themselves, which that's pretty admirable because most of the time when Jesus says, don't tell anyone what happens in the next move, people are telling everybody. They kept the matters to, the, to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. <laughs> what does he mean? And they, and they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. And we do not have time to go into this in as much detail as I'd like. Um, Jesus tells him not to tell anybody. It, it, it again, until he has risen from the dead, they don't, they're not going to see the picture clearly. They're not going to see Messiah clearly. They're not going to see discipleship clearly until the other side of the resurrection. They, they don't understand what rising from the dead means. <laughs> what do you think he means by rising from the dead? And, and, and this is fair because they would have known of the final resurrection on the last day when God judges the earth. In, the, in Lazarus' story in John 11, it's the, same, it's the same deal. You know, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And, and Martha says, yeah, I know that, you know, he'll rise again on the last day. And No, there's something beyond that I'm talking about. So they still don't get what he means. They ask about the coming of Elijah who they just saw. So all this, all this end time stuff is coming to their mind. 
you know, Malachi 4, 5 says that Elijah needs to come first before the, that great day of judgment. He'll do a work. He'll turn the hearts of the, the uh, children to their fathers. And you can read that in uh, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, I believe it is. And Jesus tells him Elijah's already come. And we see this, I believe, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's very clearly he's referring to John the Baptist. This, this Elijah figure has already come. And then it seems like he teases this idea, and again, you can parallel this with what he says in, in the Matthew account, that, that if John the Baptist was this Elijah figure, and he's the preparer of the kingdom, and then John the Baptist was killed and imprisoned, the preparer, isn't, doesn't it almost make sense that the one that he's preparing for will have to walk the same path? The disciples must learn, as the author David Garland puts it, the suffering Jesus will endure is not incompatible with his glory. The suffering Jesus has to endure is not incompatible with his glory. And not only that, their future suffering is not in incompatible with their future glory, and that's true for you too. Your present suffering, what, Romans 8, 18, the Apostle Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. Now, they were going through some sufferings beyond what a lot of us go through. Read some of the sufferings that Paul went through. He says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, likewise, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Finally, note this, and again, we could have done much more with this. This mountaintop experience that we started with, it seems like, for all intents and purposes, it's over almost as quickly as it began. And now they're left with Jesus in his humble flesh. Moses gone, Elijah gone, the Shekinah glory gone, the voice gone. Jesus. And they can't stay there, as Roxanne said, right? They've got to do what? They've got to come down the mountain. David Garland again writes, Christians do not live on the mountain but down in the valley where confusion and mayhem reign and where they must continue to joust with Satan. Yet even in the midst of suffering, God's presence shines through. So I want to encourage you, and again, maybe this is pretty simple, but I, I think it's just tuck it away. Don't, don't question or resent your mountaintop experiences. I'm not talking about just some emotional high. I'm talking about a real moment with the Lord. Worship, revelation. You know, he, he's showing you something like never before, spirit moving. I think those moments help us live in the valley. <laughs> they help us to see more clearly because we were up there and we saw it, Right? But then we do have to come down and, and work out life in a broken world. But they have their place. They have their purpose. They're, they're, they're sustaining, sustaining for us. Henry Nowen says, these moments are given to us so that we can remember them when God seems far away and everything appears empty and useless. 
E.H. Pumphrey says, in our own lives, moments of spiritual ecstasy are few and far between, and it is good for us that they should be so, and that we should be left to carry the fragrance and power of their memory into the work of our common life and the light of our common day. Finally, I'll just read a couple verses, just cool, what, as Peter later in his life reflects on this, and just wrap up with this, because I... <laughs> I think that we have to remember as we're walking through our common day that Jesus is still with us. It might not feel like the Shekinah glory. It might not feel like the voice of heaven. But Jesus, through his word and his Holy Spirit, says, I'm with you to the end, right? I'm going to never leave you or forsake you. And he is with us to that final day of glory. He, he, he reminisces and encourages us, and I'll wrap up with this. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. We, did not, we do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we were with him on the sacred mountain. When we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Mm. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Let's pray. So Lord, as I have over these weeks been praying personally, corporately, that we see you clearer and clearer. That we see this, this paradox, this tension of these two pictures. Lion of Judah, lamb that was slain, suffering servant for the sins of mankind, victorious son of God. Help us, Lord, to not just bottle up and try and bottle up, an experience with you that the spirit is like the wind. <laughs> no one knows where he's coming, where he's gone. But help us to walk with you faithfully each day, knowing that there are times of glory, there's times of revelation, there's times of just ecstasy and beauty. But as we walk down the mountain and we walk into the valley, we can be remembering those things, the beauty of those things, looking forward to the sustaining of that forever with you. But as we walk, you walk with us. You have not only pitched your tent with us by the spirit of the living God, for those who trust in you, you've pitched your tent in us. Sustain us with these truths. Help us, Lord God, when we like you, share in your sufferings. May we know, Lord God, we do so knowing that we will one day, because of your grace, share in your glory. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.